give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who alone does great wonders, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who by understanding made the heavens, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who spread out the earth above the waters, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who made the great lights, for his steadfast love endures forever. The sun to rule the day, for his steadfast love endures forever. The moon and stars to rule over the night, for his steadfast love endures forever. Those are the first nine verses of Psalm 136, which is the psalm appointed for today, Saturday, June the 18th, 2022. And that pattern, by the way, continues on through the conquest of the land. Um, and in that same pattern of saying something and then for his steadfast love endures forever. It, it's a, um, a an ode to all the things that God has done. I've, I've talked about this before, that, that one of the most important things that we can do, honestly, is to always recount the things that we've seen him do, the things that he's done in our lives, but the things that he's done in the larger context too. And so here it begins with creation and then goes through what he did for the people. And it's important that we do that because that way we remain faithful and we remain confident in him. The, uh, you're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, by the way, and I'm your host, John Green. We're continuing in the story of the spies going into the land with Numbers 13, 31 to, verse, to chapter 14, verse 5. In the gospel, according to Matthew, chapter 19, verses 1 to 12. And then also in the uh, epistle to the church at Rome, chapter 3, verses 9 to 20. Um, so remember what's happened is the Moses at God's uh, behest sent spies into the land. Those spies came back with some of the produce of the land, but then had, uh, it's great, but you need to understand that we saw some of the giant clans there. So then the men who had gone up with him with Caleb, because Caleb had said, Hey, 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 stop this, stop this. Let's, let's have faith. So the men, who had gone up with him said, we're not able to go up against the people. Caleb had said, we are able. And what he meant was with God and with his favor. And we know that because he's going to say it in a minute. He said, we are not able to go up against this people for they are stronger than we are. Well, if you're relying on your own strength and your own power, yep, mm-hmm, they are. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying the land through which we've gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim. And we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seemed to them. Well, we know that last part's a lie. (laughs) No matter what, it doesn't matter what they thought of the Israelites. And how do we know that? Because we know that when when Joshua sends spies, right, they go into um, the city of Jericho. And they stay with Rahab. And the first thing she tells them is, where you been? We've been worried about you all ever since we heard about what God did to Pharaoh and his army at the Red Sea. We've been afraid of you and expecting you. And, and all our strength dried up because of what we had heard. That, that's completely counter to this. Did they, did they have a conversation with anybody? No. They, they saw that these people were bigger than them, and they assumed that they thought the same thing of them as, oh, you're nothing to us. <laughs> then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron, the whole congregation. So it's, it's no longer the rabble and then. 
No, no, here it's the whole congregation, period, end of sentence. You don't see the rabble first causing the problem. No, it's the whole congregation that's the problem. Would that we had died in the land of Egypt. We might as well have, is what that means. Or would that we had died in the wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? In other words, he hates us. He absolutely hates us. Where did this lack of faith come from? They didn't see this. They're trusting these men, and they're not trusting Caleb. They're not trusting the Lord. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? You mean he did all that stuff that you've seen him do? He did the plagues in Egypt. He did the parting of the Red Sea, brought you over the Red Sea on dry land, and then closed it back over the Egyptian army and, and killed Pharaoh and the whole army? And you think he did that so he could bring you out here that these other people could kill you? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let's choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Well, at least they weren't going to try and make golden calves. <laughs> they're, they're replacing Moses. They're questioning God, and they're willing to replace Moses. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the people of Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes and said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, The land which we're passing through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he'll bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord, and do not fear the people of the land, for they're bread for us. Their protection is removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. And that's exactly what's happened is, is that they have rejected the Lord. They have, they have looked to themselves for all the answers and for all the strength that they need to conquer the land, and they don't have it. You know, I mean, you couldn't conce- you couldn't conceivably believe that this bunch of people who had been slaves up until a few months ago are now ready to conquer the land on their own. But they say something really important there: their protection is removed from them. And what does that mean? It means their the protection of their gods has been removed from them. And the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. And then, what's their reaction to that? They sought to stone them with stones. Let's get rid of these alternate voices. Let's censor them permanently. But the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of the meeting to all the people of Israel. And when was the last time we saw the glory of the Lord appearing at the tent of meeting? A couple of days ago, in respect to Moses, or Aaron and Miriam speaking against Moses, and the glory of the Lord appeared at the temple in that cloud and summoned them. So now, here they are, they're in the wilderness, and all this, this fear is consuming them, and they're ready to kill the two men who say, no, don't let fear overrun faith. And suddenly the glory of the Lord appears at the tent of the meeting. It's a summons to Moses to come. And if, if they didn't have fear of the Lord before, that certainly would have brought it on. So the Lord said to Moses, how long will this people despise me? And how long will they still not believe in me? In spite of all the signs that I've done among them, I'll strike them with the pestilence and disinherit them, and I'll make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. In other words, I'll get rid of them, and I'll just raise up a whole nation through you, just like I promised that I would do through Abraham. But Moses said to the Lord, Then the Egyptians will hear of it, for you brought us up out of this people in your might from among them, and they'll tell the inhabitants of this land. They've heard that you, O Lord, are in the midst of this people. For you, O Lord, are seen face to face, and your cloud stands over them, and you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Now, if you kill this people as one man, then the nations who have heard of your fame will say it's because the Lord was not able to bring this people into the land. He said that's, it. that's the conclusion that they will come to if you kill all these people. 
is is that that you weren't able to bring them into the land and and so you got them out of Egypt you got them across the Red Sea you drowned Pharaoh's army but you weren't strong enough you weren't strong enough to bring them into the land that's what they're going to believe if they see them all killed that he swore to give them that he has killed them in the wilderness because he wasn't able because of his failings and now please let the power of the Lord be great as you have promised saying the Lord is slow to anger abounding in steadfast love this is Exodus 34 forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation. Remember where the context of that was Moses uh, asked God, let me see your glory, please. And God says, you, you can't stand it. So he goes by and he sees his back, and then he hears the proclamation of God. And why did he give him that proclamation? Because he needed to know it. He needed to know that he's slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression but by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers to the children, to the third and the fourth generation. And so what, he, he needed that. Moses needed to know what kind of God that he served in order that he could use that against God, as it were. He, he, could, he could afford to say, I know what kind of God you are, that it's not your desire to judge, it's your desire to forgive. It's, it's steadfast love, slowness to anger. I'm appealing to that. I'm appealing to your very nature, which is what we do when we pray, right? Because we pray in Jesus' name, and what does that mean? Well, it means that we're praying in the name of Jesus who was crucified on the cross for our sins in love in a, in a demonstration, the greatest demonstration of God's love for, for humankind. And, and that's what he's appealing to. Nope, your self-revelation tells me this, and I'm appealing to that. And that, that we need that. We need to know what kind of God we serve. Because if he's a God of, God of strict justice, then, then what would be the point of praying? Because if he's got a strict justice, then we're all doomed. But no, we can appeal to him through his mercy because we know he's a merciful God. Please pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you have forgiven the people from Egypt until now. You know, he's constantly going before the Lord and pleading their case. Then the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word. And I believe this is similar to the whole situation with uh, Miriam and Aaron as well, because I believe that, that she was pardoned, she was forgiven, and I believe that her leprosy was healed, but she still had to bear the punishment, the seven days outside the camp. He said, I pardoned according to your word, but truly as I live and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. None of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness, and yet have put me to the test ten times, these ten times that have not obeyed my voice shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers, and none of those who despised me shall see it. But my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit and has followed me fully, I'll bring into the land which he went, and his descendants shall possess it. And his final instructions here, listen to this. Now, since the Amalekites and the Canaanites dwell in the valleys, turn tomorrow and set out for the wilderness by the way to the Red Sea. Oh, my gosh. We're going back where we started. That's what we have to do. We have to do it. God builds, the, builds us by taking us back to the place where we started. And, and he would say that again and again through the prophets, that I'm going to take you to myself. I'm going to take you into the wilderness. I'm going to take you out and make you, get you alone. But they've got to go back where they started. And what a demoralizing thing that would be. And can you imagine being Moses and going in and telling the people, we've got to go back where we started. We're going back to the Red Sea, fellas. They wanted to go back to Egypt. God's taking them back to the Red Sea. Here we are. Sure you want to cross the Red Sea and go back to Egypt? They have an opportunity. He's given them an opportunity to do it because he's taken them back to that place. Ugh. In the gospel, Jesus had finished these sayings, talking about interpersonal forgiveness. Uh, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. 
and largely. So he's coming back towards Jerusalem. Large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Pharisees came to him and tested him by saying, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And so he's looking, they're talking about all oh, the law. How about the law? What can we do under the law? What's legally allowable um, for any cause? Or is it going to be a limiting factor? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? Did you hear that? Male and female. And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they no longer are two but one flesh. In other words, if you want to know something, if you want to really understand what God thinks about marriage, go back to the beginning. That, that's where to go. You, you stopped too soon. Your reading stopped too soon. You stopped back there in the law. Nope, that's not the place to stop. The place to stop, if you want to know what God, how, how sacred an institution God says marriage is, go back to Genesis, because it was clear right there in Genesis between Adam and Eve. He said, so what, therefore God is joined together, let not man separate. And they could. That what we, the process was that the, the man would give his wife a certificate of divorce, right? And then, then the rest of this has to be adjudicated before a court, a religious court. It's even true today at some level. You've got to have some people come together and say, okay, yes, on this. And so when it says, let no man separate it, it first refers to the man who gives the certificate, the get is what it's called, the G-E-T, get. The, the first, it begins with that man because the woman didn't have the right to do that. So a man is going to dissolve the marriage, but then it's a group of men who would then have come together to decide whether or not this was a, a binding and legal divorce. So the Pharisees needed to know what, what cause had to be given for a divorce because they were the ones called on to adjudicate it. So when Jesus says, though, what God has joined together, let not man separate, he's pointing at the man who gave his wife the get, but he's also talking about to them, about their part in that process. And he's he's essentially saying, you shouldn't be doing this. They said to him, whoa, 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 <laughs> whoa, whoa, whoa. Why did Moses then command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? Hey, we're just following process here. He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, not not their hardness of heart, but your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. Because sin became the problem. And because of sin, this had to happen. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. And the sexual immorality in view here actually is a very specific kind of sexual immorality. It's one where the, the, the wife actually basically has sex with another man in front of other people. And it could possibly be her husband, but other people had to witness this. It's, it's, it's complete callous disregard and with malice aforethought. <laughs> would be the, probably the, the terms that I would use to say that. It's that kind of sexual immorality. It's, it's where she has had no regard for the marriage of all. She's making a mockery of the marriage. That is the sexual immorality that Jesus was talking about. The disciples said to him, whoa, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry, right? I mean, why would you take that risk? Because it could be, I mean, this true. <laughs> if I'm going to commit adultery, because this, I, maybe it's better if we just don't get married at all. But he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only to those who whom it's given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have uh, been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who's able to receive this receive it. Now, does he mean that there are men who have, who have you know, emasculated themselves for the sake of the kingdom of heaven? No, he couldn't possibly mean that. 
because that is a forbidden thing in the law. So what, it, what he would mean by that is metaphorically, they've decided not to. Um, and he said, let the one who is able to receive this receive it. So he's, he's holding marriage to an incredibly high standard, not an impossibly high standard. I didn't say that, but an incredibly high standard. And, and so it, it, and what is the basis of all that? I mean, it has to do with Hosea, let's say. Hosea was the perfect example. He can forgive his wife even of sexual immorality and be restored to that marriage. And, it, and that was a parable and a metaphor for God's love for wayward people. He's willing to receive back even those who are sexually immoral. And when sexual immorality with God means to go after lust after other gods. And so it, the, the image here follows on forgiveness. The forgiveness that Jesus taught that, that was before this in, in Matthew 18 is applied here at some level to the marriage contract, the marriage thing as well, that we're to be forgiving one another. And, and that's still important, and it's more important in marriage, he says, than anywhere else. In the passage from Romans here, remember he's arguing, Paul is, that, that you're not a Jew simply because you're circumcised. It has to do with obedience to the law. And it's the same with Christianity. You're, you're not a Christian because you've been baptized. You're, you're Christian because you obey. You're a Christian in name only, or you're a Christian. And your Christianity is measured by your obedience to the Spirit of God that lives in you. So here he says, what then, are, are we Jews any better off? Because he's asked earlier, is there any value to circumcision? Is there any value to being a Jew? And he said, yes, there is. There's a value in that you know the oracles of God. So you have the word. You have what God had to say. You know these things. But here he says, are Jews any better off? <clears throat> he says, no, not at all. Well, how do those two things fit together? One is, you know, through the law, you know things. Here, is there any benefit to being a Jew as far as sin is concerned? No, you don't get extra credit for being a Jew. A sin is a sin is a sin is a sin is a sin. You don't get extra credit. You don't get a pass because you're a Jew. So he says, no, not at all. We've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it's written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There's no fear of God before their eyes. That same indictment could be the same indictment that God had in Genesis 6, that the only intention of man's heart was only evil all the time. That's what he's saying here is that, that there's not one righteous one among, well, the children of men, except there is one, Jesus. And he's the answer for our sins. But so without him, we're all in the same boat, is what Paul says. Without Jesus, we are all in the same boat. We're all under God's wrath, circumcised or uncircumcised, Jew, Gentile, doesn't matter. He said, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped. In other words, I, I can't talk about you because of, well, me. Same thing Jesus says with, with you fool. Get the, you know, take the log out of your own eye before you help your brother with a speck in his eye. And, and Paul's applying this to the entire world. He says that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So you can't put up an abundance of works as long as you have sin. 
doesn't matter. As long as there's sin, Paul says, doesn't matter. Doing good doesn't matter because you also do sin. And that sin's got to be dealt with one way or another because the sin will be judged. And so what's the solution? So Paul's making sure that every one of us realizes that we are objects under wrath because of sin in our lives, our individual lives. And, and because of sin in our individual lives, he said that, that it's so much worse. They've together become worthless. So the world is the way it is because, well, because of me, as G.K. Chesterton said. What's the problem with the world? What's wrong with the world? And his answer was me. I'm the problem. And he's right. He's absolutely right. Jesus rebalances the universe and makes it a different kind of world by his sacrifice on the cross, by the incarnation, by his coming into the world and making us aware. And and it's funny, I, I read a, a, a tweet the other day from a very well-known pastor who I've had some questions about, but typically he he's, he, he kind of identifies as an evangelical, but he, but he tweeted that, the, that Jesus' teachings drew irreligious people and turned off the religious people, and that's just not true. Jesus's teachings are at one with Paul's teaching because they convict the world of sin. You could not walk away from Jesus's teaching and believe yourself to be righteous. Oh, you you think so? So you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. I tell you that everybody who looks on a woman with lust in her in his heart commits adultery. You've heard it said, don't murder. Well, hating your brother is murder. Have you done that? How you doing now? You feeling good about yourself? No. But grace was always on hand. Truth has to come. He has to convict the world of sin. He has to tell the woman at the well about her sin, that he knows it. He's aware of it, but he's already offered her grace. But the price for receiving that grace grace is dealing with the truth. And that's always the case. Yeah, Jesus' teaching didn't, didn't delight the irreligious. It couldn't possibly because it convicted of sin. But what it really did was convict the world of the love of God, the truth of the proclamation at Sinai about who God is, the truth that Moses used, quote, against God, that you said you're this, now I need to see it. Well, at the cross, we get the revelation beyond any other revelation of God's love for us, but we have to receive it at the price of truth, that we need it. Otherwise, we're objects of wrath, just like everybody else. And therefore, that's why we're called to have the character of God forgiving others as we've been forgiven.